Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian Podcast. This is Dean Jones, and it is Season 4, Episode 4. I'm really happy to have you here with my esteemed guest, Dara Goldstein. I'm sure you've heard her name. Uh, she's a very prolific writer and very acclaimed. She is an um, American author and food scholar who is a Wilcox B. and Harriet M. Adsit Professor of Russian Emerita at Williams College. And she is the founding editor of Gastronomica, the Journal of Food and Culture, which won a 2012 James Beard Award. And she also served as editor-in-chief of the short-lived magazine Cured. She is also the author of six award-winning cookbooks, most recently Beyond the North Wind, Russia in Recipes and Lore, which topped the list of best summer cookbooks of 2020. As well, she's written cookbooks such as Beyond the North Wind, that's the most recent book uh, that she has out, published in 2020, Fire and Ice, Classic Nordic Cooking, The Oxford Companion to Sugar and Sweets, High Society Dinners, Dining in Tsarist Russia, The Gastronomica Reader, Baking Boot Camp, Five Days in Basic Training at the Culinary Institute of America, Being Desire, Design and Tools on the Table, 1500 to 2005, Culinary Cultures in Europe, Identity, Diversity, and Dialogue, The World Opened Wide, 20th Century Russian Women Artists from the Collection of Thomas P. Whitney, and that's just a small sample of some of the books she's written. She's just wonderfully prolific, and I'm really very honored to have had a chance to talk to her, very knowledgeable and fun to talk to. So without further ado, we're going to go right to the uh, conversation with Dara Goldstein, author of uh, the most recent Beyond the North Wind, Russia in Recipes and Lore. Here we go. Welcome to the Well Seasoned Librarian podcast. Today, I'm very honored to have prolific author, Dara Goldstein on the program. Dara, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. I've just been very excited by reading through some of your books um, recently, and I just find your work to be so fascinating and so eminently readable and exciting. Many cookbooks I read lately I've found to be you know, really exciting, but your work has a Moorish quality to it that you want to read more and more as you go. And like, as I get your books, I want to get more of your books. It's just very exciting from like a historic perspective and scientific perspective. And so much of this is relevant to today's, I think, food trends and people's interests. So I, I want to just talk um, a bit first, though, about your biography. Um, you're an experienced professor and public lecturer in food studies. Russian cultural studies and literature with major academic publications in addition to five award-winning cookbooks. How did this road begin for you? Where did this all start, do you think? It's hard to know where something actually started, but somehow I go back to when I was around five years old and my grandmother was, she used to spend summers with us, my mother's mother. She was from a, a small village in Belarus. It was part of the Russian empire. And she made the most wonderful rogalach, which oh, yeah. are uh, pastries oh, yeah. that uh, she filled with cinnamon and raspberry jam and walnuts. Ah. And somehow the smell of that and the curiosity about where she was from, she spoke with an accent. I knew it was Russia writ large, but she would never talk about her childhood because um, she was a Russian Jew and things were very difficult there. And so I had this enduring curiosity about the place. And when I started college, I wanted to start studying Russian. And I was absolutely smitten by the literature. And one of the things that drew me into the literature were these amazing descriptions of food, just, uh, on and on, mouthwatering, and it made me want to learn the language so I could really immerse myself in it. And then I started graduate school and I wanted to write a dissertation on food in Russian literature. This was at Stanford in 1974, so it was a long time ago. And I was basically told I wasn't a serious person because food wasn't a serious topic. And I, I wanted to pursue graduate studies and I ended up writing on a Russian modernist poet. But at the same time I was studying for my comprehensive exams, I was writing down every mention of food in Russian literature. 
And I turned that into a cookbook, um, which was actually published before my dissertation was. And so that is how the food and the Russian came together. Now, um, you, you studied Russian cultural studies. Did that intersect with the food when you, when you were doing the studies for that? Did that tie into it? Well, I was really studying Russian literature. I think that the cultural studies hadn't been quite as developed then. Um, food is really an important part. And I realized once I started teaching at Williams, um, that one of the most immediate ways to reach my students was through food. I would have them over to my house. I would cook Russian food for them. It would uh, be an easy vocabulary for them certainly much easier than the vocabulary of literary criticism. And it was also immediate, you know, it was sensory and it opened up a lot. It enabled them to talk about their own food traditions. And I think that um, one of the best ways to communicate another culture is through food. I, uh, I'm, not read, I'm not well read in Russian literature, but what little I've read, um, I noticed that there was a lot of mentions of food, very sensuous mentions of food, like uh, Bulgakov's The Master Margarita mentions food quite a bit. I remember the part where the uh, cat behemoth is eating this, uh, like Blaney's with a pile of caviar and sour cream. And Oh, yes. Yeah, there's all these different mentions in different works. Uh, did you find that like awaken some of your interest in, in Russian food from the literature you were studying? Oh, it definitely um, awakened an interest in food. I remember uh, in a lot of 19th century Russian literature, particularly the work of Nikolai Gogol and also Chekhov, they both have a tremendous amount of food in their work. And part of that was because, you know, in the 19th century, there was a lot of censorship. You couldn't write about sex. I think a lot of that <laughs> was sublimated through food, especially right. in a short story by Chekhov called The Siren. It really is very erotic, his description of a, a Russian fish pie called Kulibyaka. And uh, you're supposed to basically caress it. And uh, the pronoun for that pie is female, a feminine pronoun. So in effect, it becomes like a woman. And yes, it did uh, spur me on to read more. I feel like I keep reading uh, references to Kolebiaka in different, I read a recent uh, work by an author who had a memoir about her time in Russia and how about the importance of Kulabiaka. And it's taken on this legendary status. Like it sounds like <laughs> quite an intimidating thing to like make. Well, it's interesting that you say that because in my first cookbook, A Taste of Russia, which I published in 1983, I, it was very important to me. I was quite young then and I needed to prove myself and I wanted everything to be quote unquote authentic. Authenticity, I don't believe really exists. I mean, everything's authentic or nothing is authentic, right. but um, we don't need to talk about that right <laughs> now. But I wanted to make sure that I made the authentic Kulibyaka and it took the better part of an entire day. And it was extraordinary. You have a, a dough that you make. Um, this was like a, what did I use in the original one? It wasn't quite um, puff pastry, but it, it was close. So it was a very flaky pastry. You have to line that dough with blini, which are pancakes so that the dough doesn't get soggy. You have to have layers of salmon and sturgeon, um, rice or buckwheat, dill, um, caramelized onions, um, mushrooms. They, uh, I even at that time was able to find the dried backbone of sturgeon, which gives this right. wonderful gelatinous quality. I can't find that any longer, but... Um, because the sturgeons are so endangered. But right. I made that Kulibyaka, but in my most recent cookbook, Beyond the North Wind, I wanted to include Kulibyaka, but I just don't cook like that anymore. And so I made a very streamlined one where you chop everything up almost like a hash and put it into a very simple dough that is uh, made you know, with sour cream. 
and it is equally delicious and equally authentic. That sounds wonderful. Now, in 2001, you founded Gastronomica, the Journal of Food and Culture. How did that come about for you, and what were some of the hurdles you went through to make that happen? It was such a wonderful project. So I began teaching at Williams in 1983. I, uh, the first, I, within the first two weeks I started teaching, my first cookbook came out, but I also needed to prove myself as a serious academic. So I was publishing academic scholarly articles and still doing food writing on the side because I just couldn't leave it alone. It's so important to me. I published a second cookbook in 1993 called The Georgian Feast, the vibrant food and savory, uh, no, the savory food and vibrant culture of the Republic of Georgia, which no one knew anything about Georgia at the time. Right. And um, that really sort of catapulted me into the larger food world because it won the Julia Child Award for Cookbook of the Year from the International Association of Culinary Professionals. And so I think it gave me the confidence to start doing more food writing, but always with a, a kind of scholarly bent because that's my inclination. And I published an article, I don't remember when it was, it was in the late 1990s about this amazing discovery I had made. I still think it's one of my favorite articles. Um, in the early 19th century, there was a great French chef named Carême, who uh, was very, uh, perhaps one of the first celebrity chefs. And he had cooked for Tsar Alexander I of Russia during the Napoleonic Wars. And everything I read about him said that um, Alexander I had invited him back to Russia to cook for him there. So, of course, I wanted to find out more about that. And in the course of my research, I discovered that yes, indeed, he had gone to Russia in, I think it was 1819, <laughs> but the czar was not at the dock to meet the great French chef. And he was so offended that he decided not to stay in Russia. Um, he couldn't get an immediate boat back. He had to stay for two weeks, I think. I might have my um, details wrong. But in that period of time, he walked around the city of St. Petersburg, which was the capital of the Russian empire. And he was horrified that this capital didn't have any tall majestic buildings like Paris did. And so he um, made a portfolio of drawings for monuments for St. Petersburg, which are absolutely extraordinary. He had always wanted to be an architect. And you can see that in the uh, pastry constructions that he made that are called pièce montée that he made from marzipan or sugar um, and all kinds of fanciful shapes of buildings and other things. So I compared this portfolio of his drawings to his designs for pièce montée and um, his commentary about Russia, which he hated. And I wrote this article, I got it published in a, a scholarly journal, the Slavonic and East European Review in London, and probably 50 people read the article. And they weren't necessarily the 50 people I wanted to read it. And I thought there must be other people like me who are writing these articles, they're so exciting, that are filled with discovery, but they don't have an audience for it because they're being um, published in narrow scholarly journals without wide readership. So I decided I wanted to create a place for people like me where we could publish, but it would be a crossover journal that would also invite in people from the food world who wanted to do serious food writing um, that perhaps didn't have a place in, you know, an 800 word article in a popular food magazine. Simultaneously, you were the editor of the California Studies in Food and Culture. This publication lasted up till the present time. Can you tell me about your work with that publication? So Gastronomica uh, was published by Universe, uh, still is published, I should say, by University of California Press. 
But even before the journal got up and running, I had um, started editing a new series of uh, studies in, in food that um, was again made to, it was designed so that people could think seriously about food and recognize that it is as important as anything to understanding who we are, how we think, how the world works. And right now, I think we're up to number 75 in the series, books on all sorts of different topics, ranging from histories of cookbooks to food justice, to um, Israeli-Palestinian tensions that are expressed through food. It's really wide ranging. Now, I saw something in your bio that really excited me. I, I read that you attended meetings of the Culinary Historians of Boston, which just sounds fabulous. Can you tell me a little bit about that time and, and who you got to meet during that time period? Oh, yes. Um, it was a lifeline for me. We, as I mentioned, moved to Williamstown, Massachusetts, a small town in Western Massachusetts in 1983, when I got the job at Williams and where I taught for 34 years. Um, and we had moved from the San Francisco Bay Area and it was quite a transition and a challenge at first. And I discovered that there was this group of people in Boston, which is three hours away from here, uh, who were looking at food and um, meeting monthly to talk about food and, and esoteric topics in it. And so I joined the organization and it was really a lifeline because it connected me with people of like interests. And I went uh, to their monthly meetings. I would drive for an evening meeting at say seven o'clock and then drive back on these lonely winding country roads. Late at night, I was very devoted but it was an extraordinary education for me. I met people like Barbara Wheaton, uh, the legendary um, author of Savoring the Past and uh, someone in her, how old is she now? Very late 80s, um, who is still going strong and, and uh, doing a lot of work with uh, cookbook databases. I met Julia Child was very involved oh, wow. with the group. Wow. I met um, Barbara Haber, who was the curator of books at the, uh, of cookbooks at the Schlesinger Library and a very important figure in um, making people understand how cookbooks are very important social documents. I met Corby Kummer, who was um, doing a lot of food writing for the Atlantic. Cheryl Julian, who for many years was the, um, main uh, critic for the Boston Globe, and it could go on and on. So it really did connect me with the larger world of, of food writing. I can imagine that some of those dinners were just fabulous. I mean, to be around all those people that enjoy food as much as you do, and being able to talk to them must have been fantastic. It was, it was very heady. Okay, um, in your book, Beyond the North Wind, you have a wonderful collection of recipes that dovetail with a lot of modern methods that we're getting very excited about right now, like probiotic, food, fermentation. There's so many different techniques and the food nerd in me really loves a lot of this stuff in this because it's authentic culturally, but it also kind of talks to a lot of the methods that are being talked about in food writing right now. Um, what was some of the inspiration you had for writing this cookbook and some of the hurdles you might have had writing it? As I mentioned, I wrote a Russian cookbook in 1983, and it was really when Russia was still the Soviet Union. So it reflected recipes, not just from Russia proper, but from all of the different republics, which embraced Central Asia, the Caucasus, the Baltics. And it also looked back rather nostalgically at um, 
Russian haute cuisine from Imperial Russia before the revolution. And these were a lot of French inflected dishes. So that was sort of the shape of that book. And as I thought about Russian food in the intervening years, I realized that um, I really want to get to what seemed to me the heart of Russian cuisine. Mainly, how did people survive for hundreds of years in a very harsh climate where it was very cold, very snowy, uh, bad soil, uh, often very difficult political situations, a lot of famine because of bad agricultural practices. So I decided to kind of strip everything down to the most basic techniques. So one of the ways that the Russians survived was through preserving, and that was primarily uh, through fermentation, lacto-fermentation. And one of the hallmarks of Russian cuisine is this love of the sour. Like if something doesn't taste sour, it's not quite right. So think of Russian black bread. It's a sourdough right. bread. And the Russian peasants, I mean, there are all kinds of um, documents from the 19th century that talk about um, how the, the uh, peasants would rather forego meat than this taste of sour. So their pickles, sauerkraut, um, they would use brine in soups, all kinds of fabulous cultured dairy products. I mean, we might think of buttermilk or yogurt or kefir, but the Russians have many, many more, all with different nuances. There's a lot of curing of fish. Uh, it just goes on and on. The use of whole grains, and that grain primarily being rye, which is extremely healthy because wheat wasn't hardy enough in the past. I mean, they have all kinds of hybrids now and also the climate's changing, but in the past rye and barley and millet uh, were the grains that they relied on. So this book looks at the Russian North and shows how a very seemingly inhospitable place is actually a site of culinary richness and how you can um, take these very elemental foods, transform them through culinary technique and get very delicious dishes. I think you're, I feel like your book kind of was ahead of the curve of um, I think people being interested in like grains other than wheat, maybe baking some of the dark rice. I've seen a resurgence in that the past few years. And then people are now very interested in wild crafting. I think especially since um, the pandemic hit, there's been a big resurgence of people looking into uh, wild crafting and growing their own food. And this seems to tie in very, very well with your cookbook. Um, do you think that the, we, we could learn a lot in America from the Russians interest in like, they had to like find foods because they, they had they had scarcity caused by agricultural issues, as you said. So do you think that we could learn a lot in America from this? I do. I think it's always hard when you're talking about Russia because there is such a overall negative perception. Right. So I it's difficult for me to say, let's learn from the Russians because everyone's like, well, there's a lot of bad stuff that uh, we don't want to learn from the Russians. So to me, it's more about um, thinking about the, the beauty of foraging and not on sort of a Saturday morning, go out to the park um, amateur basis, so much as making it part of a rhythm of our lives and understanding the seasons and when things appear and um, trying as much as is possible to look at what we have around us and um, see it not so much as weeds perhaps or as uh, you know decoration, but as something that can help sustain us. I mean, I hope um, that there, I mean, there is a lot of hunger in the country, but I hope we never get to the place where everyone has to be out um, gathering constantly. 
you know, the way the Russians have had to do in certain periods in their history. Now, um, what struck me about many of the recipes in the book is how healthy they were. There's definitely a lot of um, nods to health and trying to like, you know, put vitamins into the food or like probiotics and things like that. Um, did you, what was anything that you learned from this? Did you, did you learn a lot about um, probiotics when you were reading up for this um, book? Well, a lot of the reading I did was of, of um, literature from the past and no one then was talking about probiotics, but there would be these um, statements by people who you know were close to dying and then they would have some sauerkraut and they would feel better you know that sort of thing that you have to take with a bit of grain of salt but there was enough of it that made you think well okay this is what the russian peasant felt made um him or her feel healthy and so there's something to it even if they don't necessarily understand the chemistry behind it um, the whole grains we know are obviously better than refined grains. One of the personal challenges I set for myself in this book, which I have to admit was quite a challenge, but also exciting, was the traditional sweetener in honey is, uh, I'm sorry, uh, the traditional sweetener in Russia is honey. And Russia for centuries uh, has been famous for the varieties and the excellence of its honey. Sir John Tradescant, who was one of the founders of the botanical collection that um, became the part of the Ashmolean Library at, at University of Oxford, went to the Russian North in the 18th century and said, this honey is beyond belief. It's better than any I've had anywhere. And I really love sweets and I love sugar. Uh, one of my projects was editing the Oxford Companion to Sugar and Sweets. Yeah. But for this book, I decided I'm going to try and make as much as possible without sugar, going back to the old Russian way of using honey. So even for uh, jams, for preserves, where, you know, we just would kind of without thinking, we add sugar. Right. I um, worked up recipes where you use honey instead of sugar. There are a couple of recipes that do have some sugar, but for the most part, every sweet or every sweetening is honey or honey-based. Yeah, you have a beautiful recipe that is strawberry and cranberry uh, preserves with honey that's just, I really want to try because it looks really delicious. It is, it is, and filled with vitamin C. Now, I, I've seen a lot of books on fermentation lately, and I have to tell you, many of them don't present the material well. I find like a mentioning of kvass in many of the cookbooks, it, you'll always have one token kvass recipe and it doesn't sound alluring at all, but you make it sound really desirable. You're, I think you're the first writer I've ever seen that makes kvass sound attractive. <laughs> and I actually want to try, I'm like, I want some kvass now. I want to get some of this. This looks really good. And I want to try it because you really do bring it into its own in your cookbooks. So um, have you had any feedback about that or people talking about how you might've kind of sparked this like revival of kvass in the West? Oh, if only, that's so sweet of you to say. And um, I have to confess that I'm not a kvass lover. It is a quintessential Russian invention. I mean, there's so many different beers and everything else, but kvass is distinctively Russian. And it is an acquired taste. I don't adore it, but I adore the idea of it. And I adore the process of making it. So I think I channeled that, those passions, <laughs> even if I couldn't say at the end, this is my favorite drink, um, which it is not. But definitely try it because it's uh, for I mean, you have to try it. it it's very interesting. And it, it has this uh, sort of um, sour, slightly sour, um, let me start that again. It has this uh, slightly sour, lightly carbonated profile 
that has a toasty taste to it, I guess I would say from using black bread. So it, it's definitely worth playing with. Oh yeah, it sounds great to me. I mean, I liked you had a recipe for, I think it was beet, beet kvass. Yes, and that, um, I use that a lot as a basis for making borscht or beet soup. I know a lot of people drink it as a healthful tonic. I'm not that evolved. Um, <laughs> that one is really sour. Um, my recipe just calls for soaking beets in water for about 10 days and they ferment on their own. And it's this gorgeous garnet liquid, but um, I don't enjoy it just by itself. I I was really struck by, I mean, I, I found a lot of the recipes attractive. I think I have a, a, a sour palate, so I think I would really like a lot of these things. And I love beets, so I think that sounds wonderful to me. I really like the recipe that had the tonic with sea buckthorn. I really want to tr try and get my hands in some sea buckthorn and try that. Now, that's one of my favorite recipes in the book, and I actually make that a lot. So I'm glad that it appealed to you. Now, I saw that you were a representative for Stoli for a while. How did that come about? <laughs> yeah, I was a Stoli girl for a couple of years in my youth. Um, after I published my first cookbook, I was contacted by a PR firm asking me whether I would want to represent Stolichnaya vodka um, because it was just beginning to be imported into the United States and there was a big... PR push, you know, marketing to get it into the public eye. And my responsibilities were going around the country um, to different dinners or, or luncheons that were organized where there would be vodka tastings. And there were six different products. There was the plain Stoli, there was uh, pepper vodka, there was lemon, I believe, there was uh, Hunter's vodka. There was what they call cognac, which is like Armenian brandy. So maybe there were five. Somehow I think there are six. I might have forgotten one. But um, I was also on a lot of radio shows, talk shows, and TV. And the challenge was that um, the FCC regulations at that time meant that you were not allowed to advertise hard liquor on radio or TV, you could not say the brand name, but I had been hired to say the brand name. <laughs> so it's like, I was supposed to let the name, oh, sorry, I shouldn't have said that, but sort of get it out there. But what I was really talking about was vodka in Russian life and vodka is a cultural symbol, but it was actually one of the most stressful things I ever did because in fact, um, I had been hired and was under contract not to disclose. I had been hired by PepsiCo, which was bringing Stoli into this country in exchange for Pepsi being brought into the Soviet Union. Ah. And so I would be on these talk shows and people would call in, how can you um, promote a communist product? You know, you're a, you're a commie. And I'd say it's worse than you no, I'm promoting a capitalist product. And, <laughs> you know, I'm really, I've sold my soul. So it, it was very difficult, but um, I developed a real taste for vodka. My, my palate, my vodka palate is excellent. Um, and I learned a lot. That sounds wonderful. Um, <laughs> I think like I fun. have. I still have a few vintage bottles of Stoli in the, in the basement. I'll have to drag them out. <laughs> that sounds neat. I um, really enjoyed your book, Fire and Ice. And I, I saw some similarities to um, your other cookbooks on the Russian, on, on Russian cooking, like um, Eastern Russian cooking. And I was, but I saw a lot of differences too. How did you come to write that book and what led you to publish it? You're asking all the right questions and I didn't even feed them to you. <laughs> Thank you. Well, actually the book that I wanted to write was um, looking at the North. It, I don't remember what the title was, but I wanted to start in the far East of Russia 
you know, up near Sakhalin Island near Japan and go across that whole northern swath of Russia into Finland, then into Sweden, then into Norway, then down uh, to Denmark, then over to Greenland, the Faroe Islands and Iceland. And it was going to look at all these foods that people in very northerly, northerly uh, severe climates eat and how they differ and how they're the same. For instance, if you take something like gravlax, you know, which is cured salmon, um, the Swedes add a lot more sugar to it than the Finns do. Or if you look at black bread, which you find in all of these countries, it changes the further west you go. So I brought this proposal to um, my publisher and they said, we love the idea, but um, get rid of Russia. <laughs> and just focus on Scandinavia or Nordic because Nordic was very trendy then. And I said, really? But I understood from a marketing point of view, they didn't want to muddy the waters. So then I said, well, if I can't have Russia, then I'm not going to do Iceland and Greenland and the Faroe Islands. I'll just focus on the four core Scandinavian countries, which I knew very well because I had um, lived in Finland and I had lived in Sweden and spent a considerable amount of time in Norway, um, somewhat less time in Denmark, but they were places that I knew. So that's how that book happened. Oh my God, that must've been an amazing time. I, mean, I would love to visit all those countries. There's so much there that I'd love to see. It must've been very exciting. They're so beautiful. They're really wonderful. Did you get to encounter um, any of the Sami culture there? Uh, a bit, and also in the north of Russia, uh, a bit. If you look at the photograph in Beyond the North Wind of the little boy who's holding the bleen, the pancake up, and yeah. he's made a hole and he's peeking through it. And also the photograph of the Stroganina making the shaved, uh, in this case, it was uh, reindeer but venison, uh, that's a Sami family. But for the most part, they have um, been displaced. Uh, their herds can't range as wild as widely as yeah. they once did. And they have communities that have become um, somewhat touristified. So although there are small communities of indigenous Sami, um, particularly in Finland, Sweden, and some in Russia, um, they're not really thriving. I read an article uh, just, I think, a month ago about a young man in the Faroe Islands who had, I guess, he had captured a, a whale. They, they, they went whale hunting, and it was this rite of passage for him. And um, he was proud of it because this is a thing that they do in his culture in the Faroe Islands, they, they eat whale. And I guess there was a big backlash against it. And he, he got really like, he was so proud and then he was depressed and despondent about it afterwards. Did you get to visit the Faroe Islands at all? I didn't, but I, I have had whale in Norway. Yeah, I think people just don't understand in the West. I think there's this bias where we just, we kind of don't really get it. Mm-hmm. Do you think the bias against Russia is lifting? I, I'm old enough to remember when we had the Cold War and how you know negative the view of Russia was, but now I find that we're more aware of the different parts of Russia. We don't just see it as one big monolith. Do you think that's lifting now? Yeah, I grew up with better dead than red. <laughs> you know, it's the slogan, anything but communism. Well, I, I don't think it is. I mean, I think it was for a while, but then with all of the um, cyber attacks um, and all of the dirty politics that are going on with the latest um, repression of um, the independent news media, the locking up of political prisoners, I think that, um, there is a greater awareness of um, Russia as something more than a political entity and the richness of the culture, but at the same time, the political entity that Russia is, is doing a lot of 
pretty awful things. So it's hard for a lot of people to get past that. And it, it becomes complicated for me to proselytize for, oh, it's such a wonderful country because, you know, like every country, it has a lot of bad things going on. Has your research into Russia and like uh, Sweden and Finland, uh, the, the Northern like Europe area, has that influenced your um, diet at all or the way you cook? Um, let me think about that. I mean, I would say that the way we cook every day, and my husband's a fantastic cook, would be more akin to California cuisine. Right. Not that you can do that perfectly in New England in the winter, <laughs> but it, it's basically, you know, fresh, uh, simple ingredients. And we love to eat fish. And I think that the fish part um, was certainly, if not inspired by because my husband grew up in California so he you know grew up with a lot of fish whereas I grew up in Pittsburgh and and didn't really but um it was certainly heightened by tasting so many um delicious ways with with uh, fresh fish and seafood um maybe eating more pickles and fermented foods than we would have we eat gravlax a lot that I make um, and I do it in this, most often in this Finnish way that is much less complicated than the Swedish way. Cause you can do it just in a chunk instead of having to do these whole large fillets. So right. um, there are, yeah, there are ways in which it's been influenced. That's actually really smart. I never, because I think when we normally see recipes for uh, gravlax, they're always this entire fish. And I think it's kind of daunting. Doing a smaller amount really makes much more sense. <laughs> I never really thought about it that way. Yeah. So the recipe in Fire and Ice is, I think it's called um, cold cellar salmon or something like that. You'll find it in the fish chapter. And it's really easy. You basically brine it instead of rubbing it with uh, the salt mixture. I really love the way fruits are treated and integrated into um, cooking in a lot of your cookbooks. And it gives us perspectives, I think, oftentimes to see different ways of preparing uh, fruits or having them in, incorporated into a meal than we normally think of. I think we, you, you have a lot of really wonderful um, recipes in there. And I like the way fruits are treated in the, um, the, the Russian cookbooks too because they have a, a, a big love of berries as I, I do mm -hmm. and so I really love that about their cooking. I do too and the thing about the berries and also the kinds of apples that the Russians favor yeah. they add the acidic note they add that taste of the sour so if you're making a, a beet soup add some apples um, if you're a uh, have you know a rich dessert with whipped cream then add some berries and you'll have that um acidic note that i think is really important now i i remember back in the 70s uh, dan and yogurt had these commercials with these uh, eastern russians that were showed if you eat dan and yogurt you'll live to be a hundred right. you know <laughs> you want me to tell you the truth behind that yeah please okay so they were looking at um Georgians, yeah, um, Republic of Georgia, but you know, it was all seen as kind of Russia because it was part of the Soviet Union, right? And I think they were actually looking at Ajaria, which is in uh, western Georgia, or maybe even even it was Abkhazia. I can't quite remember now. But the thing is, they did find um, what is it, nonogenarians? Uh, you know, people in their nineties and maybe even into their 100s. But when I was asking about this, because I was very interested in the results of this study, um, it turns out that many of those people had falsified their passports and their birth records so that they wouldn't be deported under Stalin and sent in exile to Central Asia. Oh my God. So they, they actually weren't as old as they said they were. Well, it's still got the uh, yogurt uh, thing to be kicked off. So I guess it was good anyway. It worked it was, out. Yeah. Except that now the product, you know, has so much sugar in it. It's not like the real thing. 
Yeah, I, I noticed that it became kind of a dessert more than a, exactly. Yeah, I think although we're going back to a real yogurt now and people are making it in their home now, which is nice. Um, you were a consultant on the Ridley Scott film Child 44. <laughs> How did that come about? That must have been really thrilling for you. Oh, my God, that was really a wonderful project. And it was totally out of the blue. I just got an um, email from one of the producers on the film who said they were looking for someone who could provide, again, this word authenticity to the decor of a film that was being set in early 1950s uh, Soviet Russia. And he'd seen that I had done exhibitions and that I taught Russian art and that I was steeped in Russian culture. So could I um, give backstories to the different characters in the film, what they might be wearing, what their apartments would look like, what you know their tables would look like, that sort of thing. And it was absolutely wonderful for me to be able to try and, and recreate um, that atmosphere. I think in the end, I was disappointed with the film because the cinematography was so dark that you couldn't really <laughs> see anything. It, 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 I think was intended to give this sense of oppressiveness, which it did, but it also didn't allow uh, for any of the, uh, the scenery to pop, so. What are some of the favorite recipes you have to cook um, from the regions that you've studied and written cookbooks from? What are some of the things that you have that are go-tos that you go to now? So um, from the Georgian cookbook, I make the khachapuri, which is the Georgian cheese bread. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, very, very regularly. I make the one that has the uh, quick dough. It's a very flaky pastry dough, not the one that is yeasted. I also make the eggplant caviar a lot. Um, from the my most recent Russian cookbook, Beyond the North Wind, I really love the buckwheat honey ice cream. Mm. Um, it's just amazing if you happen to love buckwheat. I make the sea buckthorn tonic that we talked about, which is wonderfully refreshing and, and warming in the winter. Um, the cabbage soup, I mean, I never thought, I have a whole essay on borscht beet soup versus cabbage soup, and I was always in the borscht camp. But um, having researched the old way of making cabbage soup, I never thought I would be a convert. But the recipe for, um, what do I call it? 24 hour cabbage soup, I can't even remember the name I gave it, but it is the cabbage soup recipe in there where you actually caramelize the sauerkraut um, and you freeze it. So you do it in stages, it takes a quite a long time, but again, it's this idea of entering into slow cooking and just you know being relaxed about things, but the freezing and then the <clears throat> unfreezing and the caramelizing, <coughs> excuse me, the freezing and the unfreezing and the caramelizing all contribute to this incredible depth of flavor in that soup. And that's one of my favorites. We don't and really- And I make the, oh, sorry. Okay. And I make the uh, midavik, which is the honey cake with billows oh. of uh, sour cream frosting. Mm, that, <laughs> that's yeah. a go-to. That's delicious. I think that in the West, we have this misconception of borscht. And I recently had talked to one of our guests about it a bit. And um, she, we were talking about winter borscht and summer borscht. And I think I've recently been able to make it successfully for my family. Although if I tell my family it's borscht, they won't eat it. But if I say it's vegetable soup, they'll eat it, which is weird. It makes no sense, but I just have to tell them it's vegetable soup and they love it. But... <laughs> Yeah, I think a lot of Americans have this aversion to beets. I remember that Obama did. And um, I <laughs> had a friend who was a chef in the White House and I kept saying, can't you get some beets on his plate? Give him my recipe for this beet puree from the Georgian feast because once he tastes it, it will transform his hatred of beets into 
liking it, but he was dealing with too many political crises to, <laughs> to um, want to have beets on his plate at dinner. It's, it's, some, it's a vegetable I champion a lot because I think it's a beautiful vegetable and the greens are so good too. It's, you just, it's all 100% win, but Americans are like, ew, beets. But I think people were introduced to like canned beets when they were kids exactly. and they just yeah. like got this prejudice against it. And that's how I knew them. But if you try the recipe for beet khali, it's a beet puree. Um, the beets are cooked and then uh, put into the food processor with walnuts and a lot of cilantro and all kinds of spices. It is spectacular. And even people who hate beets will love this. Yeah, I don't see anybody turning that down. That sounds lovely. I mean, I just, I make pickled beets every spring and mm -hmm. I eat them, but I can never get anybody else to. Um, so I want to ask, um, what's next for you? Um, something I can't quite divulge yet because it's not um, signed and sealed, but it looks like there might be uh, something having to do with preservation on the horizon. Nice. Very good. Yeah. I look forward to that. Okay. I'm, a, I'm a big canner and preserver, so that, that's oh, right up my alley. Great. Well, Dara, I want to thank you for being on the podcast. I really enjoy getting to have you, and thank you for being with us today. Thanks so much, Dean. It was really fun talking to you. That was my conversation with Dara Goldstein, the author of Beyond the North Wind, Russian Recipes and Lore, and many more books. Um, we're going to have links to them in the information portion on uh, whatever platform you're using, so you can go right to Amazon from there. Our next guest we're going to have on the show is Christy Denny, the author of Scrumptious from the Girl Who Eats Everything. She is uh, the prolific author of um, From the Girl Who Eats Anything blog that you've seen online. And she's got many wonderful, great recipes that you can look at on her website. Uh, the cookbook is very wonderful, too. Um, I really urge you to get it. I, I feed a large family, as you've heard from other um, interviews, and having Christy Denny's cookbook around really helps feed my family every week. She's got great recipes that are very useful, accessible, and easily doubled and tripled if you have to. So definitely want to recommend Christy Denny. It's going to be here on Monday the 15th. So tune in then and you'll hear that conversation. Hope you have a great weekend and until next time, happy cooking. If you like my podcast and want to contribute, we have a link on the website information where we have the bios for our guests and you can contribute to buy me a coffee, which is a website that you can um, basically give tips to the host of podcasts and other platforms if you like. So if you want to leave me um, a tip to purchase a coffee, I appreciate your gratitude. Um, if you enjoy my podcast, please um, let other people know about it, uh, share the information on social media, or tell a friend about it. Thank you very much. Thank you.